my mom comes running up the steps of our apartment, holding this envelope in her right hand. And it's from the White House, from the president, <laughs> as addressed to me. <laughs> and the beauty of this letter was that it was not written down to a second grader. Mm-hmm. It was written with reverence. And I knew that when we got to the second sentence, it began something like, in answer to your query, <laughs> I had no idea what a query was. Uh, but I did know that all of a sudden there were people all around me wanting to hold this letter from the president. On the show today, New York Times bestselling author and longtime Esquire writer, Cal Fussman. He's also the host of the Big Questions podcast, and he's here to talk about life lessons learned from interviewing some of the most brilliant people on the planet. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasily. I hope you enjoy this episode with Cal Fussman as much as I enjoyed recording it with him. I first came across Cal's work more than six years ago when I heard him interviewed by well-known podcaster Tim Ferriss. As I listened to every minute of that three-hour interview, I was immediately drawn to Cal's amazing ability to tell stories. And as you will see in our conversation today, Cal has a very special way with words. For many years, Cal wrote the What I've Learned column for Esquire magazine, where he had a chance to interview world-class leaders from various fields. So I put together a list that I found on the internet, but this is just a small list of some of the brilliant people he's had a chance to interview over the years. So... Again, just some of them. Here we go. Mikhail Gorbachev, President Jimmy Carter, Vice President Joe Biden, when Biden was Vice President, Ted Kennedy, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Robert De Niro, Clint Eastwood, Al Pacino, George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Bruce Springsteen, Dr. Dre, Quincy Jones, Woody Allen, Barbara Walters, Pele, Yao Ming, Serena Williams, John Wooden. So you can see that this list is pretty amazing already, right? And also, Cal uh, spent some time with Muhammad Ali, actually, uh, on different occasions. But in particular, he spent a week with Muhammad Ali to write a cover feature about his life for Esquire magazine. So those are just some of the people that he's interviewed over the years. An amazing list, but the list goes on and on and on. We would be here literally for 30 to 40 minutes if I had to tell you the entire list. But the lessons learned from these interviews are countless. And Cal Fussman is one of the very few to take the art of listening to such a deep level. And according to Cal himself, questions have guided my life ever since I was seven years old and sent a letter with a question to the President of the United States and got a reply. 
Over the years, questions have taken me around the world and into interviews with hundreds of the most talented, compelling, and powerful people on earth. And this is really why I wanted to have Cal on the podcast, and I'm so grateful that he accepted the invite because his ability to tell stories and ask powerful questions is amazing. And any teacher listening to this, any leader listening to this, any coach listening to this, imagine the power of storytelling in the work that you do and being able to ask very precise, intentional questions to get at the core of what it is that the people you are working with need to develop within themselves or need to work on in order to put forth their best effort. So it really was an honor to interview Cal. And in our conversation, Cal will tell you about the letter he received from President Lyndon B. Johnson way back in May of 1964. The letter changed Cal's life and ultimately propelled him on the path to becoming an amazing writer and world-renowned interviewer. And in the episode today, Cal discusses the art of listening and the main reasons why he has devoted his life to reshaping healthcare. He also discussed in detail the lessons learned from interviewing former Soviet Union leader Mikhail Gorbachev in an Esquire article published in September 2008. It's a great story, and I know that you will really enjoy listening to it. I had an hour with Cal and it flew by, and I truly wish that I had more time with him because I had so many more questions to ask him. But during this episode, I've decided to hit the pause button and drop in a couple of snippets from Cal's talks in the past so you can hear the master storyteller himself in action sharing some of his amazing experiences. In particular, I really wanted to focus on his interview with Muhammad Ali. So Cal was so lucky to spend a week with Muhammad Ali to write the article that he did for um, Esquire magazine. So both audio clips that you're going to hear later in this episode are about Cal's time with Muhammad Ali. So I thought that I would drop them in so that you could hear him in action. I highly encourage you to check out Cal's work at calfussman.com. That's C-A-L-F-U-S-S-M-A-N.com and subscribe to his wonderful podcast, which is called The Big Questions Podcast. You can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts, or tune into his podcast website at calfussman.com slash podcast. And with that, let's jump right into my conversation with a true legend, the inspiring, award-winning journalist, Cal Fussman. Okay, Cal, it is a true honor to have you on the podcast. I have followed your work for, for years and, and I've been really inspired by the things that you've done. And the listeners have heard a bit about you in the introduction. Uh, just for, this, for setting the context, can you just tell the listeners who you are and what you're most known for? Well, I've reinvented myself quite a few times. So different people know me in different ways. Um, but by and large, most people 
became aware of me when I worked for Esquire magazine. Uh, that was between like 1997 and 2017. And I wrote a column called What I've Learned, where I got a chance to interview icons of the last 75 years, people who've lived extraordinary lives, and find out the wisdom they've accrued. So I was able to meet and spend time with Muhammad Ali and Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, presidents like Jimmy Carter, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. Obviously, Trump was way before he became president. And Biden, when he was vice president, um, all the great actors from Clint Eastwood, De Niro, Pacino, uh, to just about anybody that everybody would recognize as a household name, hundreds of people. And the column ran every month. Uh, it was very interesting because you saw a full page photo of the person. And then on the adjacent page was their wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about it was it was sort of like a Q&A, a question and answer, except you didn't know the question that got the answer. Mm-hmm. So people became very curious about my questions. And that's how I sort of came into the public eye as an interviewer. Now, there may be people who know me as a speaker because after that 20-year run, I started to speak about my experiences with these people, power of questions, and also power of storytelling. And so people then saw me speaking around the world about these experiences. And what happened then is when COVID hit, uh, all the speaking (laughs) engagements got canceled. And I turned my attention toward healthcare. And now there are people who may see me as the guy who is trying to reshape healthcare in America. So lots of different ways to see me, but basically same guy. So you just had a glimpse into Cal's journey. So this is the first time I want to hit the pause button. As I described in the interview, I was going to drop in a couple snippets of audio from Cal's previous talks. So this one in particular is a talk that Cal gave back in 2019 at one of Europe's leading technology festivals. In this talk, Cal shares a special moment he had with Muhammad Ali during the week that he spent with him in preparation for writing a cover story that was featured in Esquire magazine. This beautifully written piece is entitled, Muhammad Ali's Astounding Bursts of Physical Brilliance. I've included a link in the show notes if you would like to read this article. But the first audio clip is the moment Cal knocked on the door of Muhammad Ali's hotel suite. The door opened up, and there was his childhood hero. So Cal describes what it was like meeting him and what happened. So here is the clip now. I get a call from the editor of Esquire who says, Cal, 
Esquire is about to celebrate its 80th anniversary. We've had him on the cover more than any other person. We'd like you to write a cover story about Ali. Ali's my childhood hero. I can barely speak. But then, he says, and you're going to spend a week with him. Whoa, now I'm nervous because now I got to write the best thing I've ever written. And the editor says, no, no, don't think of it that way. We just want to know how he's doing. Because the last the world had seen of Ali was on an Olympic stage in Atlanta, Georgia. You might remember his shaking right hand from Parkinson's disease. He had the Olympic torch in his hand, and there was a little rocket at his feet that he was going to light that was going to climb this wire past scaffolding so it would drop into the Olympic cauldron and set it ablaze. And Ali's got his hands up and he puts it down on the rocket and it's not lighting. And the whole world is watching and we can't believe it. Oh my God, he can't light the rocket. What nobody knew was the rocket had been overfueled. And like in the old days with cars, if there was too much fuel, the engine wouldn't start. The car would flood. So he's got his hand down there. It's actually in the right place, but nobody can see it. And I'm about to tell you something that hardly anybody knows. The flames are coming up and burning his arm. But he kept his arm there until finally the fuel cleared from the rocket. It ignited went up the wires, past the scalping, entered the cauldron, which burst in flames, and so did everybody's heart. That's the last we saw of Ali. And now the editor just wanted me to find out how's he doing. So I go to meet Ali, and I come through the double doors of a hotel suite, and there he is. I hold out my hand to shake his, but he knows he's my childhood hero. So he opens his arms, and he comes out very tepidly, and he puts me in a deep embrace. Then he slowly goes over to a soft, cushy leather chair, and he slumps in it. I take a seat on an adjacent sofa, and I say, Muhammad, I came to find out all the wisdom you've accumulated in your life. He doesn't seem to be paying attention. He's preoccupied with his right arm just jangling from the elbow down to the edge of his fingertips. And now both of his arms are jangling. And I'm thinking, should I call his wife? I don't have any time. Now both of his legs and his arms are jangling, and his breathing is coming in gasps. Champ, champ, are you okay? And slowly his head rises to his eye level with me, and he looks me right in the eye and says, Scared you, huh? And my time with Muhammad Ali only got more confusing. What a fantastic first introduction to Muhammad Ali. I love that part of Cal's story. We're going to jump back into my discussion with Cal now, with Cal talking about listening as an art form. So here we go. Well, and I appreciate you kind of sharing that that snippet into who you are. And and as a result of uh, your work, I subscribed to Esquire in, in preparation for this. You know, I had listened to a lot of your stuff, 
But in preparation for the interview, I subscribed to Esquire and I've read so many of those articles, those Q and A's, and you present your guests in such a different light through a different lens. And that's what I find so powerful because it's like the common humanity comes out in them. And where I want to jump to now is uh, episode 145 of Tim Ferriss's podcast. He asked you if you could put any message on a blank billboard for the public to see, what is it that you would want to say? And your response was simply one word, listen. And you mentioned to Tim that listening is an art form, but so few people actually use it as an art form. So when I think of your work, you've devoted your life to listening to others to really capture the essence of their story and share that with the world. So what I want you to answer here is, how far back does the feeling of holding an empathetic, abiding presence for others go in in your life? And what lessons or advice do you want to share with the audience about the importance of listening as an art form? Well, if I go back to the moment that started it all, I take you back to a moment in November 1963, very specific day, uh, November 23rd. I was smallest guy in my second grade class and sitting in the middle of the room when Miss Jaffe, the teacher, gets called to go outside. She leaves the room, comes back in a moment later, and she's a different person. Now, when I say a different person, I mean, it's not like her clothes were any different, but her her demeanor, even her face was blanched white. And she started talking in a voice that was so cautious uh, that it was even a little scary. And she told us that President John F. Kennedy had just been shot. It was the afternoon in New York where I was at that time. And we were let out of school. We all ran home, turned on the television. And that's where we found out that President Kennedy had been assassinated. And soon thereafter, we learned that the vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson had taken the oath of office and was the new president. So that night, my parents realized, wow, I mean, Cal just turned seven last week. He's never really had like an overwhelming national tragedy like this in his life. He never really dealt with death before. They didn't know how I was going to sleep through the night uh, or my brother. So they called me over to the kitchen table and they said, Cal, we just want to let you know that this is it's a terrible tragedy, but this has actually happened before in our nation's past. And the country has developed a way to deal with it. That's why, as you saw, Lyndon B. Johnson, vice president, has now stepped up to become the president. And we want you to know that you can get a good night's sleep tonight. We don't want you to have any worries when you're going forward. Uh, Because tomorrow morning, you're going to get up. You're going to have breakfast just like you did last Saturday. You're going to go out and play like you did last Saturday. Everything is going to return to normal. So 
just get a good night's sleep. And they went over and they began to talk to my younger brother. So I'm left at the kitchen table and I'm just trying to make sense of this all. And to give you an idea of how naive I was at the time, I thought if you had a middle initial, you got to be the president. Because <laughs> the only people I ever heard of with middle initials were presidents. Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy. And so I'm thinking, this guy, Lyndon B. Johnson, he knew he was going to be the president ever since he was a kid. So what must that feel like? Because he knew he was going to be president. Is he happy that he's the president? And then I thought, well, maybe he's really sad because the only reason he's the president is because of the assassination. And the more I thought about it, I thought, wow, maybe he's scared to be the president because they might try and kill him too. And so I had all these thoughts wrapped around my head and I, I couldn't make sense of them. So I picked up a pen, a piece of paper, and I just started writing like, dear President Johnson, how does it feel? And I asked him if he was happy, if he was sad, if he was scared, threw in a few other possible emotions. And the timing was perfect because we had just learned how to address, stamp, and send a letter in class. So I folded up the letter that I wrote in three, dropped it in an envelope, put my return address in the top left-hand corner, wrote right on the front, President Linda B. Johnson, the White House, and then lick the stamp. That's how we used to do it. Put it in top right-hand corner and just fold it up and put it in my pocket. Didn't tell anybody about this letter. It's not like there was any ambition in it. There was no ulterior motive. I just wanted to know what Lyndon B. Johnson was thinking when he took that oath of office. And next day I woke up and I went out to play. I took the envelope with me and I dropped it in the mailbox. Things did not return to normal as quickly as my parents had told me they would uh, because the suspect in the shooting of John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, was then shot and killed right afterward. And we all saw it on live TV. So there was tumult, but you know, the week started to pass, rhythm got back. And after a few months, I kind of forgot about the letter until by May of 64, my mom comes running up the steps of our apartment, holding this envelope in her right hand. And it's from the White House from the president has addressed to me. And the beauty of this letter was that it was not written down to a second grader. It was written with reverence. And I knew that when we got to the second sentence, it began something like, 
in answer to your query, <laughs> I had no idea what a query was. Uh, but I did know that all of a sudden there were people all around me wanting to hold this letter from the president. The principal, my elementary school was calling. He wanted me to bring the letter into school. And I realized in that moment that, you know, the shortest guy in his class was suddenly a big man. And I knew also that a question has great power. Mm -hmm. That moment taught me that a question could get you to the most powerful person on earth. And so my life was shaped uh, from that experience onward, although it kind of took uh, a lot of reinventions to get me to where I am today, where you referenced that podcast that I did with Tim Ferriss, you know, that put me in into the ears of millions of people and has led to my own podcast, which is basically veered toward trying to improve healthcare. Mm -hmm. Now that is quite a journey, but it all started on that day. Yeah. And I absolutely, as an educator for 25 years, so I have worked uh, my wife and I, who you met right before we recorded, uh, we spent 10 years in Hiroshima, Japan, and two years in Azerbaijan, and two years in Cambodia, and five years in China. And now you're looking at me and outside the window is Saudi Arabia. So we've gone around the world in this international education system. And that story, because Juanita D. Roberts, I heard you talk about uh, her as well. And, and that story almost moved me to tears because as an educator, it, it's every educator's job to empower young people to see what's possible and to empower young people to find their own unique path and journey in life. And educators can never forget that. And when I hear that story, because you were made to feel like an adult and to a child, that's massive. So if you were a principal or a director of a school, what conditions would you create for these important things to come alive in the daily practice in the classrooms. Well, you mentioned Juanita D. Roberts. She was the personal secretary to the president, and uh, she was the one who actually typed the letter that, that came to me. And uh, the cool thing about it was there was a misspelling. <laughs> it told you, man, this is real. <laughs> this is real. Uh, and it wasn't a photocopier that, that was used for everybody. Uh, and it also tells you that a letter or any endeavor that you take a first step on is going to encounter people. And you really don't know how they're going to respond. Mm -hmm. uh, they can look at something, they can throw it to the side. But if there's something very authentic uh, about it, something that's moving, it's very likely that it's going to stay with them or they may act on it. Mm -hmm. So what, what I would encourage people to do who are educating others is to reach in 
to the authenticity uh, and creativity of the students and find out what is special about them so that they can put that out into the world because that special quality is what will be advanced Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to doing something in a cookie cutter style. Hey, look, we all get emails or see this email traffic where the question is, are you a bot? We're in a world where so much information is going out that is maybe strategic, but may not be so authentic. And I'll give you an example. Uh, and I don't mean to call this person out, but I was a little, I don't want to say wounded by it, but here I am. I put out a podcast with a guy who invented a new soda. It's called Olipop. Mm-hmm. And it's made out of plant fiber. So, uh, you know, I, I heard about this. I picked up an Olipop and I drank the root beer. And I said, like, that's root beer. <laughs> and it's not that, I, I, I wouldn't say it was like the best root beer I ever had. But it was a root beer. It was a really good root beer. Yeah. And when you realize that it had none of the ingredients that would hurt your health in it, that it was made from like cassava root and you could really love this root beer. I said, this is amazing. And I had the founder on his name's Ben. We did a wonderful podcast and I encouraged people to try this root beer because it is a metaphor for what, what's possible. Mm-hmm. We can all improve our health by making a little change and just drinking something that's good for us rather than something that might lead to diabetes, mm-hmm. right? So this opened up a window to me and I found out about this cereal that basically replicated the cereals that I loved as a kid. And I believe this cereal is called Magic Spoon. <laughs> I hope I didn't get that wrong. Uh, I, I'll try and fact check it at the end. And if, if I got it wrong, then I'll uh, get the right information back to you. But I believe it's called Magic Spoon. And I get, I, I buy the Magic Spoon and it's like really good. Like Captain they, Crunch, Captain Crunch and Sugar Pops and all that. Yeah, they did like Frosted. It's like Frosted Flakes. They did like Cocoa, which is like Cocoa Puffs. And, and I said, wow, that's interesting. And I get, I, I ordered it online and I get an email from one of the founders saying, you know, what'd you think? And I thought to myself, now that that's very cool that the founder of the company, one of the founders, would send an email to me because they know that I bought the product, wanted to know how I feel. And I said, you know what? It's very interesting that you asked. I'm really glad you asked. How would you like to come on my podcast? 
because I tasted the cocoa and it was just like Cocoa Puffs or, or kind of like Cocoa Puffs. And now I can like once in a while enjoy cereal that brings me good memories from childhood, which I would not eat now. <laughs> Never heard back. Never heard back. And the email like came from her. And so it's obvious that they set this up to make it look like you're getting an email from the founder, but it was just going into a big pile that perhaps nobody was reading or the person who was reading didn't have the awareness to pass it along because all I was going to do was good for the company. For sure. Now, okay, maybe it'll take five months for somebody to stumble across it. But it it just, it it made me wonder. And it really gets to the core of your question. Who out there is paying attention? Mm -hmm. And what are they going to take with this information that might be life-changing? President Lyndon B. Johnson changed my life when that letter came back to me. Yeah, what, what beautiful, beautiful message. And Okay, so this is the second time I'm going to hit the pause button here. And I wanted to share another snippet from the same 2019 talk with Cal, where he was describing his final day with Muhammad Ali. Remember, he spent a week with him while he was preparing to write this article for Esquire. And in this part of the talk that you're going to hear, Cal describes a very special moment when he challenged Muhammad to show him what he had. You will understand what I'm saying when you listen to the clip. But uh, they were in Muhammad's private gym, which was located on his property. And this is truly a moment that Cal will cherish forever and never forget. So here is the clip now. The next day, we had to cover a long distance and he needed a wheelchair. Day after that, we're coming out of a restaurant. There was a hill overlooking. People on the hill saw him and started running for him. People on the ground saw the people on the hill running for him. They started running for him. It looked like he was going to get sandwiched in an avalanche. And he had to get from here to the back of this room in no time, and he did. The next day, guests came to the house, and he was doing magic tricks for them could barely speak above a whisper, but he was doing magic. The day after that, we're sitting on the couch talking. He took medication for his Parkinson's disease. It turned his tongue orange, and he just fell asleep, his leg jangling into mine right in the middle of the conversation. And I'm sitting there thinking, how on earth am I going to explain this in a magazine story? There's not a single question that can leave my lips that is going to get an answer to this. I was down in my last day. Following morning, we go to breakfast. Muhammad's wife says, Muhammad, you never work out anymore. Why don't you take Cal over to the gym? Exercise a little. Muhammad kind of rolls his eyes. And we go over to the gym, only it's doesn't seem like a gym. It's more like a museum. There's no smell of sweat. There's a boxing ring in the center. Looks like nobody's ever set foot in it. 
exercise equipment around the ring. Looks like it's right out of the boxes. There is a mirror around all four walls, and above this mirror are pictures of Ali's iconic fights, principally with his arch-rival, Smokin' Joe Frazier. Now, the three fights between these guys were the highlight of my childhood. I could tell you everything about them down to the childhood stories that define their styles in the ring. For instance, when Muhammad was a kid, he used to have his brother Rudy go out in the street with him, and he'd ask Rudy to throw rocks at him. And he would stand there where the rock was coming, and it was coming, and it was coming, and just before it could hit Ali, he'd lean back and let it whiz by. And that was his style in the ring. He danced like no heavyweight had ever danced before. You couldn't get close to him, and if you did, and you threw a punch, he just leaned back, let it whiz by, and then he hit you like 22 times, faster than a shoe shine guy could buff a pair of shoes. Smoke and Joe Frazier, very different story. Short, stocky guy, grew up on a farm in Buford, South Carolina, doing chores. His dad had lost the left arm and worked a cross saw with the right. Joe was on the other side with his left. Back and forth, back and forth, every day, every month, every year, until the muscles in this left arm evolved into a brutal left hook. That was the only punch a kid who could avoid rocks in the street was vulnerable to because it came down low from out of nowhere and you couldn't see it coming. Well, watching these guys fight was like watching lightning versus thunder, except lightning had gotten a little older. What happened is the Vietnam War broke out. The military inducted Ali, said, you're coming into the military. Ali said, no, I don't believe in this war against the Vietnamese. I don't even know who they are. Military said, then you're going to jail. Ali said, then I'm going to the Supreme Court. And for three and a half years, he was not allowed to fight while this case went on. Finally, he would win his case in the Supreme Court. And afterward, on March the 8th, 1971, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier stepped into a ring at Madison Square Garden, two undefeated champions, first time ever. Only Ali was no longer as fast as he used to be. And he started to get hit. And he started to get hurt. And when he did, he had this corner man that was urging him on named Drew Bundini Brown. Go to the well once more, champ. Go to the well once more. Bundini's just encouraging him. And always Ali would reach deep into himself and find whatever he needed and pull it up to rise to the occasion. And so I'm walking and I'm looking at these photos and I'm thinking, hearing that voice, go to the well once more. And I know my question, what is still in the well? I look around and I see a rack of boxing gloves and I think, should I try? Should I take the risk? I walk over and I take four gloves off the rack. I give two to Ali. I put two on my own hands and I'm standing there looking at Ali, with my gloves up. And I've got to stop just very briefly 
to tell you a quick story that's going to make everything that happens make sense. Ten years earlier, I had gotten the ring, trained for six months to fight Julio Cesar Chavez when he was the junior welterweight champ of the world, 87 wins, no losses, almost all knockouts. And I did get in the ring with him, and I'm still here to talk about it. It's another story for another time, but what's important is I trained in exactly the style of smoking Joe Frazier. And so I got down in my crouch, I'm looking up at Ali, and I start bobbing and weaving like Joe would. Bobbing and weaving. I could even sound like Joe Frazier. I don't come at Ali, there's a big heavy bag, and I come into the bag and I say, I look up at Ali. And his eyebrows arched like a sleeping lion awakened by an old familiar scent. You good, he said. He goes to the bag. I said, you think that's going to keep me off? I go back to the bag. He comes back to the bag. I go back to the bag. He goes back to the bag. I go back to the bag. He goes back to the bag. Finally, I just unload everything I have into this bag. I look over at Ali, and his eyes say, oh, so that's your question. And then I saw something I never thought I'd ever see again. Muhammad Ali started to dance. Not like when he was young, but he still had the rhythm. He still had the grace. And he's moving, and he's moving. And as he's moving around the bag, as he's circling, he's seeing himself in the mirror, and his chest comes up, and his head comes up, and he's moving, and he's moving, and he's moving, and he stops, pivots, and he throws like 50 shots faster than my eyes could catch him. I couldn't believe it. I was stunned, but then his foot crossed, and he stumbled, and he started to fall. And I thought, no, 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 don't, don't fall. No, no! And Ali goes down on the mats next to the bag. I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do. But I break through it, and I run over to help him up. Just before I can get my hands on him, he has flipped on his back and started to do sit-ups. And now he's got his legs bicycling in the air. He goes over to the super leg press, grips the handles, pushing it back and forth. Champ, champ, I see what's in the well. You don't have to do anymore. Feels good, he said. I thought I'd pushed him as far as I possibly could, but he had more to give. We go back to the house, right outside the kitchen. We stop at a table. He says, wait here. I wait, and he comes back with a single piece of paper. It's filled with wisdom. He puts it on the table. He points to a line in the middle. It says, God will not place a burden on a man's shoulders knowing he cannot carry it. I'm thinking, whoa. He goes off into the kitchen. Comes out a minute later, and he's got two bowls and two spoons in his left hand and a quart of ice cream in his right. And Muhammad Ali and I sit at the kitchen table and we have ice cream together. I hope that one of you 
or all of you will be able to tell a story as much as I love telling you that one. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me in your future. That story was so special. And I heard it first on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And then I read about it in the article itself. I subscribed to Esquire in preparation for the interview with Cal. And I read the article that he wrote about Muhammad Ali and such a special story. And so that's what I wanted to share with you. But we're going to jump back into my conversation with Cal right now and really unpack the dedication and devotion he has to reshaping healthcare in America. So let's jump back into the conversation now. I, I really want to go down that healthcare route now because as I listen to your podcast, you can see, a, based on your, your work in the past, you can see a distinct transition into something completely different. And I listened to the January 25th episode um, where you shared life lessons from, you know, Muhammad Ali and Kobe Bryant and Larry King and, and the story about Martin Luther King. And I just want to quickly share just a snippet of my own story because I told you that we traveled and lived all around the world. And in 2011, why your, um, you know, your mission to reshape healthcare resonates so much is because of this experience. And in 2011, I'm in Cambodia and I'm coach of a soccer team and we're, we're on a bus going to the tournament grounds, which are about 25 minutes outside of the city, maybe 30 minutes. And we get there and um, the buses were instructed to drop all the players off in the parking lot, but the buses dropped us off in the roundabout in front of the school. So these kids are getting off in rush hour traffic, walking through the roundabout into the gates of the school. And I'm like, this is wrong. And I run out. And I try to stop the kids and tell them to go and tell the bus drivers not. So I'm kind of panicking because I'm so worried about these kids' safety. And I tell the one bus driver who's backing up because he can't get through the roundabout. He's backing up into a group of students. And I go up and I slap the side of the bus door. And my hand went through the door. It was like wine glass. And I pulled my hand out and it severed my ulnar artery. And I almost bled out. I grabbed my wrist and I held it above my head and I had blood pouring down on my body and my kids were two and four years old at the time. Oh, and, and I was seriously thinking I'm, I'm going to die. Like this is it. And I was rushed to a shitty little clinic and there was an Australian doctor that immediately dug into my wrist with no pain meds with arterial clamps. And he had to put uh, goggles on. And then he's like, we need to fly you out to Bangkok right away because there's no orthopedic surgeons in, in the city that can take care of this. Our passports were being renewed in Bangkok at the Canadian embassy because there was no Canadian embassy in Phnom Penh. So it was the waiting game. So I'm sitting there with arterial clamps hanging from my arm. My arm is in a tourniquet and turning dark purple. And after a couple of hours, my guardian angel was found. And I, I shared this in my TED talk, but his name is Dr. James Gulligley, and he's a retired Scottish orthopedic surgeon who runs a charity that does volunteer surgeries on landmine victims and kids with uh, birth defects. So they, doctor, the Australian doctor comes in and says, we found somebody. And they rush me to this clinic. 
And, and I'm kind of like the ambulance is weaving through the streets of Phnom Penh and it starts to back into the clinic and the doctor is waiting for me, Dr. James. And he's got a long bushy white beard. And in a moment of clarity, I look at him and I really, I think it's Santa Claus. I think Santa Claus is going to save And then he rushes me in and does an arterial ligation, which is just stitching the artery shut on both sides. He couldn't even reattach the artery. And then I was flown to Singapore two weeks later where a top hand specialist rebuilt my hand. So my hand is still only functions at about 60%. But how grateful I was for Dr. James Gulligly. And had he not devoted his life to impacting healthcare in Cambodia by opening his charity, what would have become me and my story? So I think of your devotion to reshaping healthcare and um, I want to share a quote and then ask you a question. But what you said in the podcast is I want to provide clarity about why I've decided to, to devote my life from this point on toward reshaping healthcare. The two years of COVID have only made me more determined to get the most out of my time going forward. And then you go on to say, maybe it will all make sense by tugging on the threads that run through some stories about Muhammad Ali, Kobe Bryant, Larry King, and Martin Luther King, too. These stories all show how an outsider can do something that changes a moment, which changes a life and impacts so many lives. So what do you think it is within your own heart that has sparked your deep desire to reshape healthcare? And what are you most proud of within yourself since embarking on this beautiful new path? Well, first of all, man, that is an amazing story. <laughs> let's let's just hang in the moment for a second. Uh, and and my my immediate question is is uh, is, is James Gullingly still around? Is he still? I will I will track him down because I told him just before he put me out. I was like, I have two kids. I don't want to die. And he was holding on to my arm and. And I said, if you if I live, I'm going to buy you martinis at the Elephant Bar, which is like a famous uh, bar at one of the big uh, uh, hotels. And uh, we never got to do it. We actually almost did it. But I meant to look him up over the years just to say, like, you changed my life. Like, you, you changed my life. That moment, that accident changed my life. So he's a part of my story. So, yeah, that's that's why your story about reshaping healthcare, you know, is going to impact so many people. So anyways, yeah. Wow. I'm just listening to that story and. It it just it brings me such joy because it allows me to see what's possible mm-hmm. by simply educating people and maybe even pushing forward to put right people in the right places to change lives. Absolutely. Now, you were very fortunate because James was there for you mm-hmm. that day. And all the things, think of it, man. Yeah. Think of all the things yeah. that had to happen in his life yeah. to put him in that exact place to be there for you when you needed him 
And I, like, I, I'm still got a million questions on that story. You're, you're taking care of two-year-olds to four-year-olds and you put your hand through this window. Like what happens to all the kids? Well, they were actually high schoolers. So at the time, my kids were two and four. So I went, oh, your kids two and four. when it first okay. happened, when it happened, I immediately thought of my two sons who are now 16 and 18. Uh, wow. so the kids were high schoolers, right? And in that moment, I was thinking of them. And then I just went to get help. And there were other coaches and there was just a, a blood trail that went into the school. So people heard about the accident and they saw this massive trail of blood and people had no idea until later in the day when they heard that I had emergency surgery. And the crazy thing here is, and I don't want to go like take up too much of your time because I want you to talk, but the crazy thing is my wife was a school nurse at the school. Uh, it was May 6, 2011. And she, as school nurse, gets all, the, all of these brochures and pamphlets from local charities. And she always reads them. And she came across one and she was reading and she's like, oh, wow, this, that's pretty cool. And we didn't have, we were making barely any money, but she decided that she was going to donate a hundred dollars to this charity. Guess whose charity it was? No. No. A week week later. So we found that out two weeks after when she started to connect the dots because she's like, I think I've heard of his work because I literally prayed to God for an understanding of why that happened to me. And when we were able to connect the dots, I was like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I was like, the universe was looking after me. You know, I I became very, very spiritual after and really believe that things happen for a reason. Okay. That's just, first off, I've got to have you and James and Neil on the podcast to tell that story. That that would be awesome. I got to get you on big questions to tell that full story where it ended up because it really when I, when I think of it it says exactly what I'm trying to get across in this journey into reshaping healthcare and that is it it's it's about convening people mm-hmm. bringing together people who want better health and better care for all of us And you can see what happens when people come together. And I I just find it amazing that Neela would take the time to go through the brochures, which getting back to the beginning of the conversation is really no different from what happened at the White House when I sent my letter to the president. You know that it had to go through the person who opened it up to on and on and on to reach Juanita D. Roberts, who walked into Lyndon B. Johnson's office and said, what do you want me to tell this kid? Yeah. How do you answer this question? Yeah. And, and there's, you understand how many people get touched along the way. And just by putting as many like molecules, good molecules in a certain place and having them bump off one another, yeah. what could be possible? Exactly. And so that, that story is, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine a better story to define what I'm trying to do. Now, yeah. let's, let's look at this in a, in a big context here. 
Uh, right now, in the United States, actually before COVID, in the United States, a physician was committing suicide every day. That was before COVID. The burnout rate is incredible. The burnout rate among veterinarians mm -hmm. in the United States, really high. We're short a million nurses. If the trend continues, we're going to be short 1.5 million by 2030. I mean, in the next three or four years, because of this high burnout rate, we're going to be losing 120,000 physicians because they've just had it. Mm -hmm. People who went into the profession with huge hearts and to do great things are reaching an age where their hair is turning silver and they're just done. Mm -hmm. And what's, I mentioned the silver hair because we're also facing what's being called the silver tsunami, where for the first time in America's history, the population is going to be older as opposed to younger. So just put together everything I just said, and you see we're going to have more people who are in a position to need more care mm -hmm. at a time where we're going to have less people to care for them. Mm -hmm. This a problem that's got to be fixed. And I've been, it's been pointed out to me that many times it's an outsider who makes a big change. Now, I'm not in any medical silo. There's no place where I am like boxed in and I'm doing good things in a certain area where people in that area know about me. But on the contrary, I'm talking to people across a wide arc of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And by bringing them together, I may be doing the same thing that happened when you were brought into Dr. James's office and he saved your life yeah. and you're able to talk about your teenage kids now. Yeah. And so this really all ties together and I, I hope you can reach James. I know yeah, I'm going to definitely after this episode, I will. And what are you most proud of within yourself? Cause you're always bringing other people into the spotlight and sharing the greatness in others. And it might be uncomfortable to kind of talk about you know, what's within yourself and what you're most proud of, but what are you most proud of within yourself with this direction that you've gone on? Well, you mentioned Larry King before, mm -hmm. and I went to Los Angeles. I was living in North Carolina, uh, and in 2008, went out to help him write his Soup to Nuts autobiography. And he invited me to his breakfast table at Nate Now's Deli. And I sat down. There were a lot of guys. They were all like 75 and older at the time. Uh, many of them who, who were his childhood friends. And I became a regular at the table. In fact, I had breakfast with Larry for like almost every day for 12 years. Every day that we were in Los Angeles, sometimes we're both in New York and we had breakfast there, uh, but 
It was breakfast with Larry for 12 years. And we actually had a little internet show. Uh, he, uh, after he left CNN, he started his own company. Uh, the billionaire Carlos Slim backed it with, with cash. And an offshoot of this was a little show called Breakfast with Larry, in which Larry was like kind of teaching me how to be a broadcaster. <laughs> and so I was the moderator. He was on one side and we'd have a guest. And in one of these episodes, the guest turned the tables and said, you know, I have a question for both of you. Like, why do you do what you do? Like, what is it inside you? And Larry said, oh, well, that's easy. Uh, I communicate. And he just talked about how from the time he was a kid and listened to radio, his life was just framed by communication. It was at his essence. And then this guest turned to me and said, like, why do you do what you do? And I said, to help people. And Larry looked at me like, what? <laughs> like, you're supposed to say to communicate like I do. <laughs> but it was my initial reaction. In fact, is I was sitting in the seat because I had gone to Los Angeles to help him write his autobiography. And in many ways, if you look at that column we talked about at Esquire, I was helping these icons find out their essence in a very unique way. And in fact, many afterwards would, would tell me like, I, it's the best thing like that it's ever been written about me uh, because it showed them in a light that other people had never seen them and they recognized, yeah, that's, that's who I am. And, and basically this thing was all done in 900 words. It was all yes. fit on yeah. the words fit on one piece of paper. So when you got to the end of this, you had a sense of this is who I am really at the bottom of it. And so I helped them find that. Uh, and quite often you going back to your start where you asked about listening, I can show you moments where simply asking a question and listening carefully to the response, help people find out things about themselves that they never would have found out otherwise, because if the question didn't trigger it and, and the answer didn't come immediately, you could always or quite often see them peering up to the right. There's something about that where the brain is like reaching deep down inside to find information that it knows it's there, but it hasn't come up in a long time. And, you know, I saw that in my moments with Mikhail Gorbachev uh, when I asked him a best lesson that he learned from his dad. And you went deeper and deeper and realized that that lesson was at the root of 
everything that he tried to do in the Soviet Union, create openness. And then the lesson had to do with seeing his dad go off to war. And you can really, if you go back and read that column now, you could see everything that he's tried to prevent happening right now in the Ukraine. And it's, it's really sad. And, And not only that, but like Gorbachev came to power in 1985 and in 1986, the Chernobyl reactor had caught fire and the radiation was released into the atmosphere. And at first, they like didn't even tell him what was really going on, which was the whole problem. It's all kind of a lie. Everything is a lie. Everything is a cover-up. And so, and people have been basically bred to just navigate among these, among disinformation. And so you never really know what's truthful and what's going on. And he tried to open the door to the words perestroika and glasnost, a restructuring with openness. And it's so unfortunate to me now that we've got this situation in the Ukraine and, you know, the same disinformation is being put out to the people of Russia uh, because when you get down to it, that lesson that Mikhail Gorbachev learned on the day that he saw his father about to go off to war in World War II, and his father bought him an ice cream. It came in this like aluminum cup that he remembered decades later because it basically got to the essence of war, to the essence of not knowing, am I ever gonna see my dad again? Same way you're wondering, am I ever going to see my kids again? When you're in that situation, he felt that dread in his belly. And you know what? So many people are feeling that same dread in their belly on both sides. You know, the mothers who've got kids who are soldiers in the Russian army who are fighting in the Ukraine. And all of the people in the Ukraine we're wondering if they're going to get to see their family again. That was what he felt in that moment. And that's what he tried to correct when he became leader of the Soviet Union, when the Berlin Wall came down. And it was uh, unfortunate that the, the, an economy just didn't grow out of what he wanted to do. There was a coup attempt and he was replaced uh, by Boris Yeltsin, uh, who was eventually replaced by Vladimir Putin. And now we're seeing what we see. amazing. In the article you wrote, I loved um, what you wrote about the end where Yeltsin went in the office with all of his cronies and was drinking 
vodka or whatever booze was there and wanted Gorbachev to go there and Gorbachev refused to ever step into that office again. A man of principles and deep, deep integrity. Yeah. And there you have it. I mean, you talk, talk about transformational moments where somebody, and I'm not saying that he was successful at bringing the Soviet Union forward because it went through like a time of crisis that only intensified under Yeltsin. They didn't figure out the economy and people were feeling it. Mm-hmm. And and hardliners tried or they made a coup attempt that that failed when Yeltsin stepped up. But the the point is at the core, what Gorbachev was trying to do, like, was make the world a better place through nonviolence. And always, when we find ourselves back in these places where children are on a train station platform and bombs just come down and obliterate them. You, you, you just, this is, as, as Dostoevsky once wrote, all the great ideas in the world aren't worth the tears of an innocent child. Yeah. And, and basically, that's applicable to the situation. And we've, we've got to realize that things are changing so rapidly we have problems with the climate that are going to c- cause everybody problems. And people need to be coming together in order to like, have all of us live a better life. And in, in a smaller way, we need to be coming to a better place in the way we treat our health. Mm-hmm in order to make it better for everybody. So it's kind of the the same principles uh, as we're we're talking. And it's what I'm trying to do is use questions to make people think about how they can improve things around them. And you can hear those questions on big questions every week uh, on the podcast. But what I'm also trying to do now aside from listening, is to go out there and bring a message, bring these messages so that people can be moved to take things to a better place. And it makes me so happy to be able to use both sides. Because even in this podcast, you saw that I, I could have just given you the answers, but I think it was really important to hear your story and the story of Dr. James. And once people understand all of the steps that had to be taken for you to be sitting here or standing there (laughs) doing this podcast, you, you realize like the power of trying to make the world a better place. Simple steps, a bunch of them are the reason that you're standing there. 
Yeah. Trying to take simple steps right now. And I feel like you are too. And to keep moving forward with, you know, step by step. And, and that's why I was so grateful for your episode with Joe McDonough. And as I said, he'll come on my podcast and share his story about his son who lost his life to cancer. And then I want my listeners to donate to his cause. So through your efforts, it has springboarded into my efforts to do what I can do using my platform. And, you know, we only have a couple more minutes, Cal, and I have so many more questions. But (laughs) what I want to close with is this, okay? I love your article about being a sommelier on top of the World Trade Center restaurant. And I love how you use music to describe wine. For example, a Shiraz from Down Under that wailed like Tina Turner. Ella Fitzgerald singing Scat is Wonderful Champagne. A bottle of Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World. If we were to project forward 20 years from now and you were asked to look back on your life, what three wines would represent your life, your work, and the legacy that you want to leave behind? Uh, I think it would be a vintage port uh, and like maybe a hundred year old vintage port where you would just have an amazing experience that just slowly evolved through time. So that I mean, if you look at the start of the conversation where we were and with your first question, which is a very nice wraparound because you kind of evolved your first question into the last and made them bookends. And you asked me to describe myself and I was describing myself through a a process of reinvention. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Esquire story. Uh, We actually went on to talk about Tim Ferriss in the podcast, a speaking career, now trying to improve healthcare. And it all goes back to that first moment we talked about, that moment in Miss Jaffe's classroom when I was in second grade and, and wrote the letter to the president. But, you know, that was the moment that the seed was planted. And then you know, the first grapes came up a few months later. And ever since then, it's been like a continual reinvention or evolution uh, where once the wine was bottled, it just was allowed to be reshaped by time. And if you would have tasted it after 10 years, it would have tasted a certain way. But if you had tasted it after 20, it would have been, it would have seemed very different, but it would have the same essence to it. And hopefully I'll get to 100 and my wine will be 100 years old, that 100-year-old vintage port. And you will taste something extraordinary because it will have all these passages uh, in inside the evolution and only all those passages can make that final taste. That final taste will 
be very different from the taste after 10 years and the taste after 20 because it just kept on growing and growing and growing and evolving to a place where all of the experience was included to make that taste when the bottle was finally open? That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. And I'm actually uh, quite smitten with the answer. You can help me see myself in, in a new light. I, I know where I'm headed. Hundred year old port. I love it. And the, the depth and body, right? Um, hey, Cal, I really want to thank you for your time. And, and I know people can find you. I'll have your information in the show notes. So no need to tell us where we can find you. It's easy to find you. Uh, I'm just going to close off the show and just say a couple last words to you off, off uh, record. And then uh, I, I really do want to thank you for your time today. It's been uh, amazing. It's an honor to spend time with you. And, and I hope you continue to take one step forward and make the difference in the world that you desire. Well, this is just the beginning between us and that includes Neela and includes Dr. James, uh, because uh, I got to get that full story. Uh, It's just, it's going to be amazing. And it's a real example to me of everything that I want to do going forward uh, because it's just all about making the world a better place. And all three of you took steps in that direction and we're going to see where all those steps are going. I can just tell your wine is evolving just like mine is. And uh, I look forward to uh, tasting a little more. All right. Thank you very much. I'm going to close out the show. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Cal Fussman. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vassily.